Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to God's Planning. Uh, we've taken up the custom now these weeks um, when throughout the world so many Catholics are not able to attend Mass. Um, we've taken up the custom of uh, praying through the readings and sharing sharing our own insights as a kind of um, communal Lexio Divina. So we hope that um, you enjoy this reflection that we're offering on these readings. Um, today we'll be t- looking through, talking over the readings from the fifth Sunday of Lent. So if you have them, um, you, you might appreciate um, reading them along, along with us. Uh, we'll present the readings and then offer our own insights and have some, have some discussion and prayer through, uh, throughout the episode today. So let's begin then in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. By your help we beseech you, Lord our God. May we walk eagerly in that same charity with which out of love for the world, your son handed himself over to death. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. We'll start then with the first reading, which is a reading from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, O my people, I will open your graves and have you rise from them and bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and have you rise from them, O my people. I will put my spirit in you that you may live, and I will settle you upon your land. Thus you shall know that I am the Lord. I have promised and I will do it, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This beautiful... um excerpt from Ezekiel is the very famous reference to the general resurrection. Um, I will open your graves, the Lord God tells us, and have you rise from them. It's a very dramatic scene, right? Thinking, thinking of all of, the, all of the people of God who, who have been buried, who have been trapped, who are now, who are now released, who are given freedom. Um, those, who, those who were once dead um, are given new life. Ezekiel says elsewhere, um, that, that those dry bones will come back to life, right? This is one of the prophet's great themes, that the Lord, our God, is the God of the living, not the God of the dead, um, that, that this God will give life. This is an important theme for Israel, who is in exile at this time um, when Ezekiel is preaching. Um, the, the Israelites are in Babylon, and, uh, and they're captives. So this promise of life, this opening of graves, is a promise of liberty, of freedom of renewal, um, it's a re-echoing of God's fidelity, a reminder to Israel that he's going to be faithful to what he's promised, right? Um, that he, the Lord God, is going to undertake this, um, that he will open the graves uh, of the people of Israel and and they will rise from them. Ezekiel is an interesting person too, um, as a prophet, but also as as a man that we, we read in the beginning uh, or through in the book of Ezekiel that he was a priest, but he was also a married man who lost his wife, but the Lord commanded that he not mourn his wife, that he's that he was unable to mourn her. And through the whole through the whole book of Ezekiel, we have, as Father Patrick just mentioned, this whole um teaching on on life, on the resurrection, on on the Lord who is the God of life and not the God of death. Father Patrick mentioned 
um, Ezekiel and the dry bones that we have earlier in this chapter. And then also remember that um, Ezekiel prophesies about the uniting, the uniting of the nations when, when he joins those two sticks together later in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. But um, at this point in, in the passage that we have for this Sunday, God speaks directly about uh, raising to new life without the use of symbols, without the dry bones, without the sticks, without mourning, without the, the prohibition on mourning, but God speaks directly. Um, Ezekiel's prophecy here, it's really an exhortation to all of us, you know, firstly to the Israelites who are in exile, but also to us who are in a sort of exile, um, you know, due to our sin, due to, uh, you know, even we could say a sort of exile, staying home in our houses now and not able to attend mass. But uh, Ezekiel reminds us that it's by God's power that we are, that we're able to live and that we're able to live in him. It's by God's power that we are able to worship, even though circumstances might be different or change. And ultimately it's by God's power that we share in his life, that we, uh, that we hope to share in, in his healing and his mercy now, but in the resurrection in, um, in time to come. I think too, that in, in the present time, you can think very concretely how in many dioceses it's, now impermissible even to celebrate funeral rites, right? So this idea of not being able to mourn or this kind of um, different expression of our hope in the general resurrection brings home to us in urgent fashion our aversion to death and our hope for something beyond death. And it's not as if we're just inventing it from our collective consciousness and projecting a God into the skies. Uh, fortunately, he has taken human flesh. He has spoken to us and we believe that he is as he says he is. Um, but you can see here, how there's there's something there's something to death which is very unnatural now on the one hand you know we have bodies and bodies are bent on dissolution as anyone who has sustained a sports injury knows but um there's also a sense in which this was not god's original design so when we think about how adam and eve were equipped with every good and perfect gift in the garden their minds were attuned to god their their bodies were harmonious and they enjoyed immortality and impassibility but that is as a result of sin that this, uh, that death and all that comes with it are introduced into the world. Um, but it leaves us kind of nostalgic. You can think about original sin as having ruined us for life. You can't go back to an otherwise ungraced existence. You can't go back to a time before which the Lord had predestined us to glory. We have been, uh, you know, claimed for him, purchased at a price. And as a result, we will either be co-heirs with him unto eternity, or we will have rejected the end for which we were made. And so there's this kind of nostalgia for the garden, but there's a nostalgia really for the how much more that the Lord introduces. And so this, the description here of the general resurrection is a kind of prophetic testimony to what we all feel in our bones and in our members, namely that there is a place uh, beyond the grave. There is a time uh, in a kind of eternal sense <clears throat> in which we will not have to taste of death in which Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes where there will be no death and mourning, uh, but rather that we can hope to enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so I think, I mean, at this time especially, um, it's good to, to meditate on those, uh, that revelation, to meditate on that teaching of the faith, uh, to do so not with a kind of escapist spirit, but rather with a truly hopeful one for what lies in store. The second reading is a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
but you are not in the flesh, on the contrary. You are in the Spirit, if only the Spirit of God dwells in you. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead, will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit dwelling in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When St. Paul speaks about the spirit here in this passage, but elsewhere in his letters, he's he's talking about the living or the, the sort of dynamis, dynamism of, of God in in the life of each faithful, really within within who we are in virtue of our in virtue of our baptism. It's the spirit for St. Paul is a manifestation of God's love for us, and it's really the source of our, of our life in God. Uh, God's spirit for St. Paul is also Christ's spirit. You know, it's, it's the spirit that lives in us. It's the fulfillment, really, St. Paul is speaking here, of the reading of Ezekiel's prophecy, our, of our first reading, that, that new spirit that raises to life. And when speaking about um, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, St. Paul uses the faith, uh, or sorry, he uses the future tense to speak about our, our life in Christ, about our, our resurrection as Christians at the second coming. So St. Paul, he's speaking to us now, you know, that we, though we are still in the body, we do have our, our, the spirit of God living within us, but we also have hope in the future in the second coming, in the resurrection. And I think this is important for us to remember as Christians as we sort of struggle at times in this school of holiness. And remember that, you know, growth in virtue and growth in holiness isn't a sort of overnight thing. Conversion often isn't a one and done thing. But St. Paul holds out for us, reminds us, exhorts us to remember that our hope is in Christ, that we're not made ultimately for the realms of this world, but for the world to come. And this time now, we are given a foretaste of what that looks like in the Eucharist, in the Mass, and living in the Spirit. Um, but that, that, that's not the end. That's not the end. And as, we, as the weeks of Lent kind of carry on, and we come closer and, and closer to the resurrection, the readings, and St. Paul's reading here from Romans especially, kind of highlights that, brings that to the fore uh, for us in order to prepare well for Easter, but also for, for, our, uh, for the second coming. Uh, the word in this text that jumped out at me in particular was belong. So the line there in the middle, whoever does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And I think about it especially because it kind of, hmm, it, it conjures for me uh, thoughts of friendship. So there's a sense in which we share this, the spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit that rests upon the Messiah on account of the fact that we enjoy communion with him right? So we talk about friendship as a kind of shared benevolence, a mutual benevolence with a common life to it. And that for those who know the Lord and love the Lord, or for those who are grafted into the Lord by virtue of their baptism, by virtue of the life of grace at work within their members, that we can actually live in and through out of uh, the same spirit because we have this, this common life. And St. Thomas will talk about it, how like we can have real friendship with Christ, not only because he says it in the gospel of John, but because there is the hope of a real shared life in beatitude, which beatitude is just the coming to fruition of the life of friendship this side of the grave. 
And it, for me, the connection there with, uh, with the resurrection is brought home by a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul talks a lot about the resurrection, uh, personal and general, and its implications. And he describes the order of the resurrection. And he says the order is that it goes Christ the first fruits, and then all those who belong to him. And I think for us, this is a good way by which to imagine our own judgment, uh, because I think we, we can sometimes envision it as impersonal, as if we were to appear before the throne of the Most High God, and then we would have a kind of infused knowledge of all of our credits and debits, and we would see at the end whether or not we came out in the red or in the black, as if it were just um, a verbatim, you know, recounted to us from our life, uh, rather than something communicated to us by a friend. And if we envision it along the lines of something communicated to us by a friend, then we can you know, we can think about it in those personalistic terms. Um, our friends don't just soften the blow for us, but they reveal to us things that we could not otherwise recognize because they're kind of like, they're for us an extension of self and so become an instrument of self-knowledge. But they also communicate it in such a way as to like love you into something better. They coax the good out of you and they encourage you uh, to grow uh, so that you can love them better, not because they're selfish, because, because you find in that friendship something that's compelling, something that has a claim on your life, something that's rich. And so when we envision our judgment or we envision what, what goes before the general resurrection, it's a matter of belonging to him. And we can think about it as like, will you recognize him? Will you delight in his presence? Will you thrill at the thought of spending eternity with him? Or will it be for you something oppressive or otherwise repugnant? Because what we do in this life is a kind of forecourt of heaven. And if we can uh, abide the the terrible weight of glory of the forecourt, then we can hope to enter therein because we belong to him, because he has made himself uh, beloved to us and we have come to possess him in turn. The spirit who dwells in us, who gives us life, makes it possible for good things to be appetible to us, right? Um, one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis is The Great Divorce. And the best part of the great divorce is, I think, the fact that Lewis describes people who are uh, people who are separated from God, people who do not yet know the fullness of heaven's glory as shades, right? They're ghosts, they're, they're specters, they're phantoms. And only as they're able to relinquish their sins are they able to withstand, um, to really experience, to be able to, to, be able to handle uh, the glory of heaven, right? Um, the grass is too uh, piercing for a shade to walk upon. The grass of heaven, it, the, the blades of the grass of heaven are searing, you know, as if swords. And the water of heaven is, is too cold and too sharp, you know, like, like being cut by diamonds. And the fruit of heaven, an apple, is so heavy that, that the shade, the specter, can't, um, can't lift it. That's the difference between the body which is dead because of sin and the one who is alive in the spirit because of righteousness. Um, being, able, being able to taste the things of the Lord, to touch them, um, to, to, be able to, to be able to touch real grass and not have it feel like a blade, to be able to sit your, stick your hand in, in the waters of heaven and, and not be harmed by it. That's what the spirit does. It opens, opens us up, allows our horizons to be broadened, um, to be able to be able to be comfortable with the things of God, to, to long for them, to pursue them, um, to desire them, um, and then, and in an even deeper way, to be capable of, of beholding them. 
A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Now a man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was ill. So the sisters of Lazarus sent word to Jesus, saying, Master, the one who you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not the end and is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to stone you, and you want to go back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If one walks during the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks at night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. He said this, and then told them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I am going to awaken him. So the disciples said to him, Master, if he is asleep, he will be saved. But Jesus was talking about his death, while they thought that he meant ordinary sleep. So then Jesus said to them clearly, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas, called Didymus, said to, the fe to his fellow disciples, Let us also go to die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, only about two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will arise. Martha said to him, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went out and called her sister Mary secretly, saying, The teacher is here and is asking for you. As soon as she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. For Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were with her in the house, comforting her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, presuming that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come out, who had come with her weeping, he became perturbed and deeply troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have done something to do something so that this man would not have died? So Jesus, perturbed again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to to them, untie him and let him go. Now many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen what he had done, began to believe in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So in uh, reading this Gospel, this is our third of three long Gospel passages taken from John. We had John 4 with the woman at the well. We have John 9 this past week with uh, the healing of the man born blind. And then here, this long story of the resurrection of Lazarus. And it's fascinating. I was just um, uh, thinking earlier about uh, the connection between this passage and uh, that in John 9, the healing of the man born blind. You recall that at the beginning of that gospel, it's asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. So too in this gospel, um, a similar question, or at least a similar query is posed, uh, where Jesus heads it off at the pass this time. It's not actually asked him by his disciples. But when Jesus heard this, we read, he said, this illness is not to end in death, but it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And later, at the end of the gospel, Jesus says to Martha, who is very perturbed, "Uh, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So we know and we profess, and you know those who remember it from their catechism class will say that the reason for which we exist is the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Uh, So it seems fairly straightforward. And yet when we encounter trials or temptation, sadness, and suffering, Uh, that the simplicity of that vision can be obscured from us. And we are like to ask, you know, why is this thing happening? Is it the punishment for my sins, the sins of my parents? Is it because this geopolitical event happened? Or is it because the Lord is trying to teach me some hard lesson? And I think the temptation in those instances is to think about the Lord as a kind of input-output machine. You know, you put in bad human beings and he outputs punishments so as to make better human beings, as if the Lord were only competent Um, to like chastise and chide, like he is, you know, raining from his heavens and looking down upon us with a kind of, I don't know, nonplussed face thinking like, oh, would that they would heed better. You know, it's like, no, like the Lord's vision, I'm not saying that the Lord is condoning, but I'm saying that the Lord's vision is more expansive, that the Lord's vision conduces unto the glory of God and the salvation of souls. And he's not just like one cause amidst a, a muck and mire of causes. Like, you know, I was trying to do this thing, but then God stopped me. It's not as simple as that. The Lord permits all of these interrelated events to occur, and he is operating, he is at work in and through them, so that in some wild and wonderful and orchestrated way, they might redound to his glory. And we're free, which means that we can know our end as end, and we can choose whether or not to pursue it. And part of the drama of human life is that we can fail, and that there is the possibility of ultimate tragedy, to not, to not become a saint but that the Lord will make it such that whatever befalls, regardless of whether it is seemingly small and we're embarrassed that it so overwhelms us, or huge, and we lack the moral imagination to even conceive of how we can cope, that the Lord will not permit us to be tempted beyond our strength, and that in his providence, he can draw all things unto himself, not because he's creepy, but because that is our ultimate perfection and our happiness.
similarly, uh, I would like to say that um, our, our our horizon is just too small. We we don't we don't even know oftentimes what we should be asking the Lord for, right? And um, we see this in uh, the story of uh, the raising of Lazarus, and we saw this in, when we were sitting with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, she and Jesus are having this conversation about water, and Jesus says, "Well, no, 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 I'm not talking about water from the well. I'm talking about water." Which will be, uh, which will be the the spring of eternal life. I'm talking about the kind of water, which once you have tasted it, you'll never you'll never be thirsty again. It will fully satisfy you. The same thing happens here. There's a there's a there's a, a kind of misunderstanding um, in this Sunday's gospel, where the disciples and Jesus are talking about Lazarus as if he were asleep, and the disciples think. The disciples think something is small, isn't they? and they think something small is it, but they think, oh, Jesus is just going to go and wake Lazarus up from his nap. Oh, good. If he's asleep, then he'll be saved. And what the Lord has in store is actually something much more grand. He, he even clarifies what he's going to do. He says, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. That something very great is going to happen. That Lazarus died, the Lord wasn't there, so that Christ could raise him from the dead and the disciples would have their belief in the possibility of what the Lord can accomplish quickened. That they would have greater faith in the resurrection, that they would have a, a confidence, a hope um, that, would, that, would, that would be unbroken in the Lord's own resurrection because they know that Christ rose Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus died and was raised so that Christ could show us again how much more he has in store for us, um, how great the works are that he, that he was going to work, um, so that when he suffers his own passion, his disciples wouldn't despair. They would say, of course, it's possible that he, that he could rise from the dead. We've seen him bring back one from the dead. Something that has sort of stuck out to me over the last three, this Sunday and the last two Sundays with the three long gospel passages from John, as Father Gregory mentioned, is the way in which Christ um, relates to the person or the people to whom he's, he's, he's speaking or manifesting his glory. So if you, if you re remember, we remember the Samaritan woman, he encounters the Samaritan woman and she leaves and comes back afterwards and the townspeople come and, and Jesus and Jesus sees her. But it's sort of a, she speaks with our Lord, and then she goes to, to kind of proclaim that, and they come back to see, to see the man who had worked such a wonder. With the blind man, our Lord heals the blind man, but then when the blind man, when, when Jesus learns that the blind man is kicked out of the synagogue, he comes back and meets the blind man. And then here, this sort of relationship is even, the relationship between our Lord and the people in the gospel is even richer, even fuller, that our Lord now comes to them first. And throughout this whole gospel passage, we're reminded and told um, again and again of our Lord's friendship and his relationship with Lazarus, with Mary and Martha. So as these weeks have gone, it's sort of, we've sort of been invited into what this friendship with our Lord looks like. Um, as Father Gregory was talking about with the, with the letter from St. Paul, our second reading. And one of the one of the my favorite scripture passages is it's so simple it's from this this section in John is that um, when John reports that Jesus wept just those that one verse that's that's two lines and it manifests so clearly our Lord's humanity um, that he too is 
is troubled. He's, he's sorrowful. He cries because of their sorrow. He cries because of Lazarus's death. You know, these, he's, he's a man, he's a true man, but he's also true God. Um, and in that, that's, that's, that's where the beauty of the friendship and the relationship with, with Christ is. I'm currently reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with some friends and I, in reading those books, am, am kind of struck again and again on this sort of humanity of Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, and when people recognize him. So they, they speak about his physical characters and uh, characteristics and, you know, the smell of his mane and sort of the, the fur and how he looks into their eyes and how he cries at one point. And these sort of things that unite the person to God, um, this sort of bridge that, that, that hu- the Lord's humanity is, is so right there in front of us, easy to grab and easy to relate to. Um, John really, over these last few weeks, has highlighted this friendship, this relationship, not in just a sort of earthly way, but one that leads to eternal life, as the readings for this Sunday have shown us, that our Lord is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And that offer is an offer for us. Even if we are stuck in our houses, even if our life is riddled by sin, our, the, our Lord's mercy and his light and his goodness is on offer for us. Um, and this is why he died for us, to offer us such a life and such a hope. I just had uh, one final thought with which to follow on. And it was this idea, so Father Patrick talking about that you may believe, right? So this is a sign that is to conduce to greater belief. And Father Jacob Bertrand talking about uh, our Lord's humanity and how his humanity is made kind of progressively more and more known or it's extended to us in friendship. Um, and I was just, I was thinking, you know, in this passage that that word belief, it, it kind of reminds you of other places in which belief is described in the Gospel of John. And you can think of some of those first scenes in John 1 when the Lord calls Andrew and the unnamed disciple, perhaps the beloved disciple, and then later Nathaniel, and it says that they believed in him in that passage. But shortly thereafter in John 2, at the end of the first sign, the miracle of the wedding feast of Cana, it says that the disciples believed in him. And I think we're accustomed to think about belief as a kind of toggle switch, right? So you're either on or you're off. But as we know, you can grow in virtues, not in that, um, you know, you get more in a kind of crass way, like, you know, you have this kind of faith, but then you get souped up faith, um, but that we can share in or we can participate in the virtues that are given to us at baptism, that are restored at confession, and that they can have a, have a deeper hold on our life, so like a kind of greater intensity, and then they can have a greater extension, so they can touch more things in our life, or, or our life can become more and more transparent to the realities that are conveyed by those virtues. And so you can think here, like, what is being revealed? Well, the resurrection is being revealed. Uh, it will only ultimately be revealed later, you know, John 20 and 21. Uh, but already here, you see it in germ. And so their faith is, is gaining greater extent and it's taking hold on their life with a deeper intensity. And if we put this in conversation with the fact that the Lord has entered into our human state and accompanies us along the way, this for us is great encouragement. Because I think that in difficult circumstances, when we get thrown for a loop, we think, oh, I, I guess my faith wasn't really that great after all. Well, I don't think that's necessarily a good way to think about it. I think it's good to see it as an opportunity for faith to grow in your life, to grow in its intensity and to grow in its extent. And the Lord, in his generosity, affords us a variety of circumstances so that we can grow because he loves us so much that he will not stop inviting, goading, inspiring, so as to lead us further up and further in into the humanity, all of which he has taken to himself. 
We thank you for tuning in on this fifth Sunday of Lent, uh, walking through these Sunday readings with us. Uh, do know, as we've said in the past, of our prayers for you. We'll continue to pray for you and um, offer Mass for you too. Please pray for us, um, for, for those friars here in D.C. and Father Patrick and the friars up in Providence. Um, and uh, why don't we at least finish with the prayer after communion for this Sunday. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We pray, Almighty God, that we may always be counted among the members of Christ, in whose body and blood we have communion, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us this time on God's Planning, and we look forward to chatting with you next time. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.